The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm your host for the podcast and Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the school. I have with me in the studio today Dr. Joseph Piper, President Emeritus. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. It's always good. Today we are going to be um, having our regular faith and practice segment of the podcast where Dr. Piper handles listener questions that are sent to us over a period of time. And at the outset, I do want to just give a little bit of an announcement about faith and practice. We're going to be continuing it moving forward, but we're going to move it over to uh, Antioch Presbyterian Church, where Dr. Piper and I are co-pastors and that this ties into another announcement about the seminary podcast in terms of what's going to be happening with it as I transition out of my role here at Greenville Seminary. And that announcement is in, is in a subsequent episode that should release about a week after this episode. I encourage you faithful listeners to listen to that for news about the podcast. I don't want to get bogged down in it, but Dr. Piper and I intend to launch a, uh, a new uh, question and answer podcast uh, under the auspices of Antioch Presbyterian Church. So we thank you all for listening over these many years now at uh, on to Faith and Practice through Greenville Seminary, and um, we hope that you'll continue to benefit from our labors, even for uh, many years to come. We're thankful that we've been able to do it, and we sure look forward to doing it together for a long time. It's not that it's not going anywhere. It's going somewhere else, but it's not going away, and I'm glad for that. I'm glad we can continue to do this together. All right, Dr. Piper, I have um, a bunch of questions here. It's a good set for our last GPTS Faith and Practice, but if you would, please open us in prayer. I will, Zach. Our Heavenly God, we bless you, the Holy One, the Glorious One, the One who is unique and there's none other like you. We praise you for your Word. We praise you for the Word incarnate, our Savior, and for the Spirit who has brought us into union with Him and who teaches us now through the written Word. We thank you that your Word is sufficient for all that we are to believe and do and that you give us grace as we search it. We pray you'll give us grace today, Lord, as we interact with these very important questions and give us insight, keep us from error. And we ask these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Our first question comes from longtime listener Virginia Canuto of Pernambuco in Brazil, and she asks a question regarding the Lord's Supper. She says, is frequency of Lord's Supper observance an element or a circumstance of worship? Well, Virginia, it is neither. Uh, it isn't, the Lord's Supper is an element of worship, but its frequency uh, is not an element. But neither is it a circumstance, because circumstances, if you look at the Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 6, are things about which the Bible is silent. So such as what time we meet, or uh, how we organize the church, just any number of things that will vary through country to country and from uh, age to age. But, but the third category is form. And form has to do with um, how we conduct the element and what 
is the content of the element. So preaching as an element is the verbal public proclamation of the Word of God by a man appointed that task. The form of preaching would be what passage of Scripture is chosen and the message that the minister puts together. The circumstance of preaching would then be that we're going to do it at 9.30, 10 o'clock. We're going to meet in this place. Uh, we're going to use a, a, a podium or a pulpit. We're going to have seating different ways and things like that. So, yeah, the circumstances are necessary to accomplish the form, but they will change according to where we are and who we are and what time we are in history. The forms uh, are all revealed in Scripture, either in terms they must be scriptural content. So our prayers, our sermons, and the things that we sing must always be scripturally faithful. We also know that uh, as forms, we may sing the words of Scripture themselves as we find them any place in Scripture and particularly as we find them in the Psalms. But we think as well that we may sing scripturally faithful words, poetry, a set to good music. So things uh, like that are form, but then also just other aspects of the element itself. So the use of voice, the corporate amen in worship, it would be a matter of form. Postures in prayer, whether we're standing or kneeling or whether we would sit, postures for reading of Scripture. These are all things revealed in the Word of God. Uh, so we may do them, but they uh, it's not a sin to do one rather than the other. Calvin has a very good discussion of that. I think it's in Book 4, Chapter 10, maybe, um, where he deals with those things. So, the Lord's Supper is an element of worship. The frequency of the Lord's Supper is highly set forth in the Westminster Directory of Worship. But whether it's to be um, even as infrequent as quarterly, which was what the church did when I was ordained, or monthly, or every other week, or weekly, uh, that depends on the, uh, the wisdom of the elders. There's not sin in one way or the other. Now, there, there are great advantages to greater frequency because it is a means of grace but it would not be an element or a circumstance. Thank you, Dr. Piper. There's a follow-up here on, um, on the Lord's Supper from another listener in Brazil, Lucas Salgado of Minas Gerais, and he asks, uh, should, or, or basically he asks if it's appropriate to use grape juice, he says, should we consider the use of wine an element and work with the congregation that uses grape juice to come back to the scripture on this, or can it be considered as a form? And and so this ties right there into the into what we've already been dealing with in terms of elements and forms in relationship to the sacraments and the Lord's Supper is the issue of whether to use wine or grape juice a formal issue, or does it compromise the supper uh, really down to its essential meaning? Thank you, Lucas. Um, again, to keep in, in mind the uh, distinctions that we've made, the Lord's Supper is an element of worship. Uh, whether we uh, distribute the, the plates to the congregation or sit around a table or whatever, 
could be circumstances or it could be form, depending on how one wants to look at that. Uh, but the use of one uh, would be a matter of form. Uh, there are very strong reasons theologically for using one. So yes, it would be a goal to uh, bring a church to understand that Christ has appointed one. A number of reasons, but particularly uh, in terms of the idea of fermentation and the wrath of God. He drank the cup of God's wrath right down to the dregs. And then the celebratory part of the Lord's Supper, and that is that he is um, uh, wine's a gift to God to make glad the heart of man. Uh, as well, there is the danger of, of legalism uh, that is a sin. So if somebody is saying, we're not going to use wine because it's a sin to use wine, they're sinning. If they say, we don't want to use, well, I'm going to use grape juice for the sake of, of other people or witness or something, whatever, uh, that's not a sin. I don't think it's a wise uh, decision to make, but it's not a sin. So to add to the Word of God, to make wine and the Lord's Supper a sin, would be a very terrible sin. But if it's merely a matter of, of ignorance or preference or whatever, um, it uh, is not a sin, but we should, I believe, uh, seek to get churches. And, of course, churches can compromise. Uh, or, no, that's not the right word. Churches can... Uh, meet people halfway by doing what most churches do, and that is put some cups of grape juice in the middle of the communion tray for those who in conscience cannot take wine, and that's how I always say it. Uh, but we encourage you to use the wine because that's what Christ appointed. My question on this, Dr. Pipe, has always been where do you draw the line? Because you know we've heard these crazy stories about evangelical churches that will use things like pretzels and uh, and soda in communion. Well, it's got to be fruit of the vine. Now, that's a, so that's a, a term that is used. It needs to be derived from... It must be derived from grapes. Got it. Well, thank you, Dr. Piper. And, you know, Lucas, this is more of an American concern, but if we ever got to the point of convincing all of evangelicalism that wine must be used, and then Welch's grape juice would be out of business, because that is their primary source of revenue, is actually selling grape juice. <laughs> Or at least historically, that was why uh, was that admitted. company yeah. uh, began. Um, so uh, Lucas has a couple other questions that I want to hit before we move on from him. One is, should the church discipline professedly Christian young adults and teens that are in a romantic relationship with a non-Christian person? Yes. Uh, let's divide it this way, Lucas. If that teen is a communicant member of the church, then definitely the process, it should begin with their parents and the uh, elders should be working with the parents. But if they are communicant members, then yes, they need to be disciplined if they persist in that relationship. If they're non-communicant members, again, it begins with the parents, and the elders must work with the parents uh, to warn them and to warn those children of uh, the serious consequences. There's differences of opinion. I think that a covenant teenager who's not a communicant member should be put out of the church if they willfully break the covenant. Others would say they're willing to keep coming, but no, that's a, that's a terrible sin. And so I would think that they also would be, would be put out of the church. And I agree with you, as you have friends who are now out of the church because they were never warned or dealt with in a proper manner, that I believe that we could, in God's providence, save a lot of young people uh, from really messed up marriages and lives if, if the church were more faithful here. 
Thank you, Dr. Piper. And then Lucas asks a biblical uh, question here. He says, why did Moses, when arguing with Pharaoh, always say that he wanted to hold a feast to the Lord instead of saying he wanted to leave Egypt permanently? Was he lying in order to flee with the people? Was he afraid to say that he was permanently taking the people away? And then I would add, did Moses fully expect to return to Egypt after uh, worshiping the Lord in the wilderness? I doubt that he expected to return from what God had promised because he was fulfilling the Abrahamic promise to inherit the land. But it was the primary reason. Uh, And that's clear when we get to Exodus 19. So the primary reason was that God was kind of worshiping people for himself to worship him in the way he wanted to be worshiped, where he wanted to be worshiped. That would start at Mount Sinai where God would make covenant with them and constitute them this next expression of the Old Covenant Church. And so um, God's people are never required to tell all the truth to their enemies. Um, what Moses did was tell the most important reason uh, to Pharaoh. And it's a very important lesson for us, Lucas, uh, that the primary reason that God has delivered us from our sins is that we are part of this worshiping people who serve him in all of life and who gather on the Lord's Day for corporate worship. And you know, as you read the account, I'm always struck by the fact that Pharaoh is so resistant to allowing them to go out. Perhaps he knew, or at least had a sense or premonition that if he let them go, they weren't coming Oh, I'm sure he did. And so I think you can read between the lines there um, based on that. Lucas, you have a couple other questions about, um, you know, the, the giftings of a pastor and what advice you would give to a new elder. Uh, these questions are, are things that we have addressed on a numerous occasions in the past, and I just refer you to previous episodes of Faith and Practice. But thank you for sending them in. And, of course, but, you can always send yeah, Lucas, if, if you can't find those uh, issues, uh, just resubmit the questions, because I think both your questions are very important. Our next uh, couple of questions actually deal with things that we've said on the podcast before. Again, we encourage listeners to send us um, send us follow-up questions, and this comes from Anonymous, in Faith and Practice episodes 47 and 64. You said not all deception is lying and that the government may use deception to protect a life. In fact, you just said a moment ago that Christians are not required to share all the truth with their enemies in a, in a conflict kind of situation. Now, he says, or the listener says, I'm wondering about situations that don't involve protecting life and those that involve private citizens is undercover police work that doesn't directly protect life or prevent death, does, is that permitted? May private investigators, cybersecurity professionals, and the like perform undercover work that doesn't protect life but protects property or aids an investigation? May people put security system signs or beware of dog signs up when they don't have a security system or a dog? May Christians do undercover mission work or smuggle Bibles into hostile nations? This is an excellent question. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, it really is anonymous. Um, and I, I'm comfortable the way you've explained, expanded the parameters of, uh, of my answer, um, that uh, protecting life is more than simply at this moment this person could kill you. The whole purpose of all undercover military or police work at the end of the day, is to protect life and property, which is the responsibility of the government. Now, I don't know quite what you mean by involving private citizens. In that case, uh, we must be much more circumspect. Uh, 
that um, we must speak the truth in love. We don't have to speak all the truth, uh, but uh, there the principle, maybe to expand it to to fulfill any of the other commandments, would you would use deception. Uh, I, I think that the um, again private investigators that can be a very uh, a seamy group of people. And so if a Christian goes into that kind of work, which I think is a valid work for a Christian or a cybersecurity. Now, cybersecurity professionals aren't really going to be using uh, deception. But uh, undercover work in order to discover the truth is not, uh, I think, yeah, that could be a deception that's not a lie. Clearly done in police work. Um, but if it's done in order to find out if somebody is committing adultery. Um, normally, at least the little bit I know about it, that's really not undercover. It's more of an investigation. Undercover is when you actually go to pretend to be something you're not, and I don't see how that really would fit under uh, private investigators or cybersecurity uh, professionals. But surely police or military undercover operations, I think, come under the uh... so my understanding i used to be in tech staffing before long before i ever came here to the seminary and the cybersecurity professionals a lot of their work is actually posing as hackers ah. to break systems in order to show their flaws so then then you can put up additional uh measures well as i understand it they pose as hackers not to trick the hackers but simply they keep testing your system as if they were a hacker that's very different yeah but they do it even the deception aspect is the folks who are charged with actually setting up the safety parameters don't know that they are not actual yeah, that doesn't, hackers. I don't think that matters, though. No. They're, they're professional hackers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's basically so, it. Yeah. So now the uh, other one is a bit more humorous. Um, security signs about the dog or the security system. Uh, I don't know. I, I think that... Uh, it's clearly a deception to protect property and life. So in that regard, I think particularly, at, you know, where you live, it's more important than here um, that you got these types of things. So if you don't really have the dog, you can put the sign up. If you're protecting your life and your property, and, and you can't distinguish. If somebody's coming through your barrier, uh, you know, here we have a law. You don't stop and ask them, have you come to rob me or have you come to do me physical harm? You may defend yourself. And so I, I would take those as acts of, uh, of self-defense. Now, the other part of, of mission work and smuggling Bibles, we must obey God and not men. So at that place, um, I think that some of the Bible smugglers back when the Iron Curtain was up would say, yeah, I got a whole bunch of Bibles in my trunk. You want to look? And uh, most often the border people never looked. And sometimes they've looked and God either caused them not to see it or whatever. Others will say, no, I'm not carrying Bibles. And I think that's a matter of individual conscience at that point. It's surely right uh, in an instance like that to uh, take Bibles to places where they're outlawed. Thank you for the question, Anonymous, and um, if you have follow-ups on that, please send them in. It's a fertile ground for discussion. I think one of the themes of our 
episode this time is truth-telling. In fact, our very next question. Yeah, let me just say that we lost a very good friend this past Saturday who was for a long time an undercover policeman in Los Angeles and did a lot of good. But I also hurt his own health in that process and part of the problem that led to an untimely death, God's providence. The next question um, was not submitted anonymously, but I'm going to keep it anonymous uh, for the sake of the questioner. He says that my children have recently made neighborhood friends and apparently had a conversation about Santa Claus with the neighboring children. And if uh, you're catching on with the theme of the episode, you see where this is going. Afterwards, we were greeted by the neighboring child's father at our door, and he asked if we would refrain from telling his child that Santa is not real. I sought to explain this to my child, but I found it difficult to say that he should not tell someone else the truth. I did applaud his saying what he knew to be true, even when another was questioning, but I instructed him not to speak to the neighbor's child until I thought about this more. My 17-year-old daughter also challenged my being okay with remaining silent and sees this as a matter of truth. What is an advisable course of action for this situation? And you know, this is not the last, the first time we've talked about <laughs> spilling the beans about Santa Claus on yeah. this podcast. Um, a proverb comes to mind, and that is, answer, do not answer a fool according to his folly. Answer a fool according to his folly. And I think that the, the gist of that is that we have to be wise in the answers that we give to fools. Thus, I do not think you're withholding truth from an, um, uh, another child by not disabusing him of the errors that his parents teach them because that's not the responsibility of your children or your responsibility as the next door neighbor. Now, if you get involved with the parents in discussing the nature of um, Santa Claus and the blasphemy that's involved in that, that's a great opportunity. But I don't think there's any sin at all involved in instructing. I know we instructed our children uh, you know, you just don't talk to people about these things because um, it's not really your time or place. Now, if you're in the conversation and you're challenged about it, why don't you guys do Santa Claus? That's very different. But to just bring it up as children at that age tend to do, you know there's really no Santa Claus. I think that's uh, really unnecessary. So I don't think you were wrong to tell your uh, younger ones to uh, not to do this. I think your 70-year-old, I appreciate her, zeal, but again, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Thank you for the question. And our next question also submitted by Anonymous. Uh, what do you think of the tradition or practice in some conservative Presbyterian churches to require that men be deacons before they become elders? Would you counsel a young man who feels called to the eldership to comply with his session's wishes that he serve first as a deacon, even if he does not feel called to that office? Very important question. Uh, the tradition is absolutely wrong. The facts behind the tradition are understandable. If one looks at the gifts that Paul lists in Romans chapter 12, I refer to those as the gifts of office bearers, uh, that deacons will have at least three of those gifts. But the ruling elder must have at least six of those gifts, and the pastor must have all seven of those gifts. So three of those gifts are more clearly diaconal, service, uh, ministering mercy, giving with hilarity. Um, but because of the fact that the elder um, must have all diaconal gifts if he's going to be a true elder, what we've seen over the years is that a man 
who was younger, uh, served as a deacon, and the church recognized uh, his gifts and uh, placed him in that next office. Not all deacons uh, are qualified to be elders. I was just teaching about this at Antioch and, and shared the story. Very godly deacon at the OPC church we were uh, ministering and, and serving and, and worshiping in Philadelphia. A godly man and a wonderful deacon. <clears throat> if the church had ever made him an elder, they had done him a terrible disservice. And it would have been tragic. So it's not necessarily just a stepping stone. But in terms of gift structure, it is. Uh, and thus, let me come back to you this way, Anonymous. If you have the gift to be an elder, you better have the gift to be a deacon. You must first long to serve the people of God. So your church might be doing it for the wrong reasons. Uh, you know, it's not a stepping stone. But I would encourage you not to, um, to push back that you're not called to that office. You are called to that office. That's why when we organize churches, we don't have to have deacons to organize churches. We have to have elders because the elders will do the work of deacons. So it's a noble work. Uh, if that's what they want you to do, I don't think you're sinning, even though you have gifts for both offices to start, particularly as a younger man, to start there and meet that need of the church. Again, you don't want to be complicit in the wrong view, and so you could you know, let them say, you know, I believe I have gifts for both offices, and I do believe that an elder should want to serve. All of us who are elders should want to serve as deacons. That's a great question. So at the end of the day, you'd advise him to uh, put himself in submission to his elders and serve as a deacon if that's what they're requiring him right. to do. Very good. Very good. And there's there's a lot of honor in serving as a deacon. Well, there is. I mean, it's a noble calling, and it's a very high calling as well. Um, our next question comes from Michael Mangulardi of Radford, Virginia, who just visited us at Antioch while on vacation with his family. So in God's providence, here we are, seeing his name reappear, flashing before our eyes. How do we maintain the spirituality of the church by discerning whether a subject is a matter of faith and morals or a matter of politics, especially when political matters are moral in character? And he gives as an example the clearest one of our day, abortion. All right, Michael. Uh, let's first define some terms. The spirituality of the church has to do with the church's uh, ministry. And as our confession of faith says, the church is for the gathering and perfecting of the elect, and unto that end God has given her uh, the ministry, the word, the ordinances, and the promises, and the work of the Holy Spirit. So the church visible uh, is not to be involved in politics. The church visible is not to be uh, picketing uh, an abortion clinic. The church visible is not to uh, advocate uh, for certain political candidates uh, in uh, its public meetings. But the church visible, when it preaches the word of God, must preach on whatever is in that text of Scripture. So uh, abortion, uh, same-sex marriage, transgenderism, uh, promiscuous no-fault divorce, whatever is going on that... Uh, that passage deals with. That does not violate the spirituality of the church. So 
I think that's just the place to, to draw the line. The church itself is not to involve herself in politics, but she is to, to preach the gospel and to apply the word of God. Did you ever encounter in your own thinking this issue when you, when you went and led the first integrated summer camp in the state of Mississippi? I mean, did you have conversations about you know, what should or shouldn't be done and how the spirituality of the church interfaced with that when you had that integrated summer camp? Well, no, because these were all churches, members of our presbytery by that point. And so I promoted the gospel and what the Church of Jesus Christ should be. So when um, the Synod did join the uh, black and white presbyteries together and the presbytery uh, in Mississippi owned a campground that I was managing because it was about six miles from where I lived, uh, I spoke against selling the camp, but keeping it and running a camp for the presbytery. But that's quite consistent with the spirituality of the church because it was a ministry of the presbytery. Mm -hmm. And so it was integrated because it was ministering to all the people of the presbytery, and you were being consistent with the principles. It's very good. Our next question deals with the doctrine of the church from a different angle and the governance of the church. This comes from Tim Miller of Jacksonville, Florida. He says, I understand the PCA allows individuals to take exceptions to the Westminster standards, assuming they do not strike at the vitals. When the PCA allows this, what exactly is being said from a governing standpoint? Does taking an exception on a particular doctrine expressed in the standards allow an individual to excuse himself or others from any adherence to said doctrine? A thought occurred to me recently that perhaps exceptions to standards ought to be handled the same way one might take exceptions to a national law. I may disagree with the reasoning behind the law going in place, but as long as the government is not asking me to sin, I should still submit and follow it. Wouldn't the standards be considered part of the governing authority of the PCA? You know, Tim, that is an excellent insight that I've not really ever heard mentioned. Um, The way the language is that a person says, I differ with the standards on this or that thing. The presbytery then, and this is very relativistic, must make a decision, is this difference merely a matter of semantics or a minor scruple, or is it a difference that is serious enough to be considered an exception, uh, or is it a difference that that strikes at the vitals? Now, what our presbytery has tried to do is to say that if, of course, with semantics, we recognize that there's different ways of interpreting certain words in Scripture, that if you if you hold primary to the doctrine, but you've got a minor scruple here or there. But that, that next level of exception we, we see most often with respect to the images of Christ or, or the Lord's Day. Um, Presbyterians have different approaches to that. So some will say you may hold it but not teach it. Others will say you may hold it and teach. Now, I think your point of view is to say you may hold it but not work against it, and you may hold this difference but not work against the standards. In fact, you should submit to the standards because it's the law of the church. I'm going to try that, Tim, at next Presbytery meeting because I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it's a very good analogy. I mean, these are our doctrinal standards at the denominational level, and as a Presbytery, we're empowered to determine what is a scruple, what is an exception. Of course, there's review and oversight of that determination by our Review of Presbytery Records Committee every every year. Um, but I think the analogy that Tim points out here is is very elegant and, and has a lot of 
a lot of com- yep. is a very compelling analogy is, yes. what, is how I want is what I want to say. So thank you for that suggestion and a hearty yes and amen. Our next question is another one uh, dealing with a matter of ecclesiology lived out in the context of the Presbyterian Church in America, the denomination in which Dr. Pipe and I are both ordained ministers. And this comes from Lisa Johnston of East Aurora, New York. She writes with concern. As a church member and novice at denominational government, I've been following as best I can Overtures 23 and 37. Now she's referring to Overtures 23 and 37 out of our last General Assembly, which then, uh, after having passed the General Assembly, were presented to presbyteries as proposals uh, 2 and 4 this past cycle. And she says, I see that they have both been voted down, and I will not and will not now come before the next General Assembly for discussion or adoption. Some presbyteries may have voted against them for technicalities rather than the principles upon which they are founded, namely the principle that gay identity is not consistent with Christian identity. But still, this is exceedingly concerning to me as a member of a PCA church. Could you help me understand what this means, that these overtures have failed? The first thing I'll say, Dr. Piper, and then I'll hand over to you, is I'll say that the failure of these two proposals does not indicate that the conversation is over. No, you're right, and I think it'll be coming back in Birmingham. Well, Lisa, it's nice to hear from you. Uh, Lisa's a friend. She had a daughter that was uh, at Bob Jones. She was daughter was uh, involved here at Covenant Community OPC. I uh, let me just redirect your attention to this. They they failed because they had to have. 66% of the presbyteries to vote for them. Now that's out of, what, 80 presbyteries? 88. So, and they barely failed. So what we have to realize is that there's still a large majority in the PCA that actually is in favor of those overtures, and they, they had flaws to them. And so, unfortunately, some conservatives which do what conservatives often do, and that is rather than go with what you can get, uh, want for purity. Um, so the, the defeat of the overtures simply tells me that, yes, we've got a, a sizable minority in the PCA that doesn't, did not want those overtures to put in our governmental standards for lots of different reasons, but that the majority, and a good size majority, of the of our denomination wanted those overtures as flawed as they were. So then what uh, Zach is saying is this is not dead, and there will be some better crafted overtures that will come back. Uh, There also apparently will be attempts to reform the Standing Judicial Commission so that it will act more on the basis of doctrinal integrity rather than being an appellate court. So a lot of good things can come out of these a situation as well. So we would ask you and all all of our listeners, but particularly our PCA listeners, is be really pleading with the Lord for our denomination. Thank you so much for listening over these many years. For the past five years in particular, it's been a real joy uh, hosting particularly this segment of the podcast with Dr. Piper. And uh, I really thank you all for tuning in. Dr. P, do you have a last word? Well, we just hope to hear from you and Lord willing, we'll be able to reach out to you right after the PCA assembly. We'll do a a kind of a post-assembly faith and practice. So watch it and send in your questions. 
Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and Confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.